I'm going to start this morning by saying a couple things that might offend some. But as I say them, just remember, we love everyone, and we all need God's grace and forgiveness. And with that in mind, I tell you that we are in the midst of a rebellion. And it's a foolish rebellion, but it's still a rebellion. Many in our nation have basically declared war on the Bible. People who stand for biblical truths concerning sexuality, marriage, gender, and abortion are under attack. Last week, a Christian college in Missouri, the College of the Ozarks, lost a case in federal court. Unless they appeal and win, the College of the Ozarks will have to allow genetic males to live in women's dorms and use women's restrooms and showers. And the fact that this goes against their, belib- belib- yeah, their biblical beliefs doesn't seem to matter. In Michigan, a high school valedictorian was told by high school officials that she could not share her faith in Jesus Christ during her commencement speech. She didn't back down. She fought for her right to free speech, and fortunately there was an outrage, and the school was forced to reverse its position. Truth is becoming increasingly relative, and Worse yet, if those who control social media don't like what you're saying, you can be silenced. You can be canceled. Attempts have been made to remove God from our public schools, from the public square, and from the minds of millions. The church is under attack, and Christians are facing increasing persecution. And all this going on in our culture has caused many Christians to struggle. Some of us worry, we're anxious, we might even feel defeated. Instead of having faith, we let fear rule our lives. And we can get angry. And our anger can be righteous, but sadly, our anger can be misplaced. Hate and fear fight to replace love. And the sad truth is, is we Christians, people who have trusted their lives in Jesus, we also rebel against God. We shake our fists at others, but should first look into our own heart. We know what the Bible says about our rebellion, which is just another word for sin. In Psalm 51, King David made it clear. David wrote this, he said, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Our sin against God includes lust and pornography. We can be greedy. God is not a priority. We can be filled with pride. We are selfish with our time. We're selfish with our money. We're selfish with our talents. We put our trust in ourselves or another person instead of God. And this rebellion, this sin, it's nothing new. It started in the Garden of Eden. Later, the Israelites sinned. Then the nations of the Old Testament sought to destroy Israel, and in so doing, they rebelled against God. The early church faced attacks from the Jewish leaders, and so it continues. And still today, we try to make our own rules. All of us. We act as if we are gods. And God laughs. Memorial Day weekend, and we have been honoring those who 
have given their lives to defend this nation. They put down evil rebellions. They protected our freedoms. God is our ultimate protector, though. He is sovereign. God will not, will not tolerate rebellion against him. He will protect his people. A few minutes ago, we read from Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 speaks to the futility of rebellion against God. It's called a, a royal psalm, and that is to say it speaks of the royal coronation of a Davidic king. And this psalm actually ultimately points forward to the coronation of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Like all the Psalms, this Psalm 2 is a song, but it's also a poem. It's got four stanzas with three verses in each stanza. And for those of us who like structure, who like things to be organized, I got to tell you, this is a great Psalm. The first stanza, verses 1 through 3, speak to the plans of the nations to rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. And then the second stanza, verses 4 through 6, present the response of God to the nation's foolish plans. The third stanza, or verses 7 through 9, remind us of God's anointed king's claim to the throne. And then finally, the fourth stanza, which includes verses 10 through 12, provides wise counsel to those foolish nations and to all others who rebel against God. For our, us structure lovers, and I happen to be one of them, I'm going to restate the four themes or maybe the four ideas from Psalm 2. The first is, is that it's foolish to rebel against God. The second is God will prevail. The third is God has the authority to rule. And the fourth is all are warned to submit. Psalm 2 is a very ancient poem. It's an ancient song, and yet... It applies to our lives today. Psalm 2 begins with a question concerning the plans of those nations. The first verse states, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The New Living Translation of the Bible says it this way, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time on such foolish plans? Again, the idea of that first stanza is this, It's foolish to rebel against God. Now, the ESV translation uses the word rage to describe the rebellion. The nations raged. And, and to help us understand this raging, picture a group of rebels. They're planning an attack. They're taking counsel together, as the psalm declares. It could be in a cave in the Middle East, a government headquarters in China, a, a corporate boardroom, or even the halls of Congress. However you imagine such people, know this. They are planning to defeat God's chosen king. And they believe they can do it. They don't think they need God. He has no authority over them. Now the original hearers of this psalm would immediately have thought of the tribes that surrounded Israel. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and, and a whole bunch of other badites. These people wanted to erase the Jewish nation. Nation. But then Peter quoted this psalm in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And in Peter's time, the, the so-called nations that plotted against God were the Jewish religious leaders. They were against Jesus' followers. And of course, the raging continues today. The psalmist said the plans of these leaders was to burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now you could say that this way. They wanted to break away 
from God's rule. They could try and do it. People try and do it today. The results are the same. Rebellion against God is in vain. It's foolish. The foolishness of rebellion against God reminds me of when our youngest, Adam, would get in a fight with one of his brother's older friends. Adam called this older friend of my son's Packy. And Packy was five years older than Adam. And Packy was about twice the size of Adam. Packy would make Adam mad. And so Adam would charge Packy with his fist flailing. And for all Adam's efforts, (laughs) there was no chance he was going to win. In the end, Adam would be a little beat up and very exhausted. His fight was in vain. Like the raging nations, Adam was being foolish. Proverbs 12, 15 states this. It says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 28, 26 concludes. It says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. The last words in the book of Judges sadly proclaim this. It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When people do what's right in their own eyes, they're typically rebelling against God. And so how does God respond? Is God passive? Does God let evil go unchecked? Is God powerless to stop it? The answer is no. God responds, and we see his response in the second stanza of this passage of this psalm, verses 4 through 6. And the idea of the second stanza actually flows out of the first, and that is that God will prevail. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, God scoffs at them. He mocks them. He makes fun of them. The psalmist makes makes sure that we recognize God's position. God is sitting in heaven. To, To sit in heaven is to have power. God is infinitely more powerful than any earthly king or government or person. You know, similar to that Adam and Packy story, what if I challenged Alex Reyes to a pitching, to a hitting pitching duel? What if I said to Alex, I can hit a home run against you guaranteed? Now Alex would have a hard time controlling his laughter. He's a major league baseball player. He's a reliever. He's a good one at that. I'm a 62-year-old guy who would be very, doing very well to hit a slow-pitched softball. We're literally not in the same league. And se- n- several 97-mile-an-hour fastballs later, guess what? I would walk away in humility. Alex Reyes wouldn't have to say a word. His pitches would laugh at me. Alex, baseball superiority would prevail. And you could say that's similar to the relationship with these rulers of these nations to God. God not only laughs at them, but he speaks. In verses 5 and 6, we read, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God responds in righteous anger. His wrath, his fury will terrify the kings of the earth. 
And the process is very clear. God speaks to them, revealing his coming wrath. Those who oppose God are terrified because they realize they are greatly outmatched. God contrasts himself to the kings of the earth. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You know, we might say it this way. God says to those rulers, you have your plans of coming against me? Fine. I'm in charge. I've got my king on my hill, and he's going to prevail. Now, at this point in the psalm, the anointed king shares the message God gave to him, and that's the third idea of the stanza is this. God's king has the authority to rule. God said to his chosen king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now at the time the psalm was written, the king appointed by God was an adopted son. Saying that he was begotten meant that he belonged to God. But for some of you, you hear that word begotten and begotten son, and it might sound a little bit familiar. And it should. It's, it's in the Apostles' Creed that we sometimes recite during our services. It's also found in some translations of John 3.16. The ESV translation of John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But other translations say God gave his only begotten son. Hebrews 1 speaks of God's begotten son. And that begotten son is Jesus. Now, that word begotten, when it refers to Jesus, means that the Son shares the exact nature of the Father. He wasn't created. He wasn't made. He's one with the Father. Psalm 2 was looking first at a king that would be appointed by God during that time, but it also looked forward to the eternal king, Jesus. God's king will rule over all, the psalm says, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is Lord of all. And as such, the psalmist says, the king, or the the anointed one, Jesus, will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. I mean, think of a clay pot and a sledgehammer. King Jesus is the sledgehammer. Those who oppose him are the clay pots. You don't want to be the pot. And one day Christ will return. And before Jesus returns to rule, the book of Revelation speaks of a a great battle. And it's commonly called the Battle of Armageddon. It's a battle of good and evil. Some imagine this Battle of Armageddon being a, a long war with each side landing fierce blows. You can almost see God's armies about to be defeated when they somehow finally manage to win. And you know, that story makes for a great movie. But fortunately, isn't real, isn't remotely close to the truth. You know, the battle of Armageddon might last a second or two. Evil doesn't stand a chance. God will prevail. He will crush evil, and Jesus will rule. The last stanza, the last three verses of the psalm offer a warning and the only appropriate response of the earthly kings. In the first three stanzas, the earthly leaders were instructed, first, that it's foolish to rebel against God, second, that God will prevail, third, that God's king has the authority to rule, and then the final idea of Psalm 2 flows out of those first three points, and that is, 
all are warned to submit. See, because of who God is and his power, all are to submit to the authority and rule of God's anointed King Jesus. It's the only wise choice. Verse 10 reads, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And I got to tell you earlier this week when I was working on this message, I wrote down the fourth point as this. I said, was going to say, all are encouraged to submit to God. You know, for me, the, the word encouraged seemed like maybe a kinder, more gentler word, a more positive word. But yesterday, it hit me. God wasn't simply offering encouragement. He was graciously offering a warning. I, I'd paraphrase God's warning this way. God was saying, don't be stupid. Do the right thing before it's too late. You know, think about it this way. We don't just encourage a small child to look both ways before crossing a street. We don't say, Tommy, you know, it'd be a great idea if you look both ways. No, what we do is we warn them. We don't just encourage a friend not to drink and drive. We warn them not to do so. It's the same with unrepentant sin. Well, encouragement might help sometimes for some people. They need a warning. Rebelling against God is never smart. It, it never results in a, a good ending. God's warning graciously offered a second chance. See, God is the master of second chances. God will forgive the repentant heart. He offers grace. We don't deserve it. But if we repent, if we come to him and ask for forgiveness, he will give it. When God warned the rebellious people in the psalm, he also included instruction. He said, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, in this case, to serve means to revere or show respect. You could say to serve is to worship and obey. Uh, such service brings joy as we realize the power of God. And that realization of his power should cause us to tremble. His power is incredible. The psalmist said the foolish kings should kiss the sun. You might say, kiss the ring. It shows you respect the king. They should bow to the king. They should submit to the king. And then the psalm ends with the words, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Those words bring comfort to those of us who have trusted in Jesus. We know that in this life we'll have trouble. There will be times when we face persecution. People might try to silence us. All too often, it seems like the, the bad guys are winning. But no matter what life offers, God is our refuge. God is our strength. God will prevail. Jesus is the king of Psalm 2. Jesus secured victory for you and I on the cross. We have nothing to fear. We have everything to gain. But what that means is that you and I have got a job to do. We should be beacons of truth. With grace and with compassion and with love, we should warn people if they're headed down the wrong path. Our warnings can be demonstrated in how we live, 
in how we treat others, and in our words. We show them and we tell them a better way, the, the best way, actually the only way to live, and that's Jesus' way. Rich Mullins was a, a Christian musician, and he wrote a song that was actually based on Psalm 2, and the song is called, While the Nations Rage. It's one of my favorites. Look it up online. It's a great song, and pay attention to the lyrics. One of the verses shares the truth and the hope that, that we need. It says, The church of God, she will not bend her knees to the gods of this world, though they promise her peace. She stands her ground, stands firm on the rock, watch their walls tumble down when she lives out his love. And then the chorus triumphantly proclaims, Where are the nails that pierced his hands? Will the nails have turned to dust, to rust, but not so the man? He is risen, and he reigns in the hearts of the children rising up in his name. Where are the thorns that drew his blood? Will the thorns have turned to dust, but behold the love he has given. It remains in the hearts of the children who will love while the nations rage. We love while the nations rage. We stand in Christ. We don't bend. And God wins. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in awe and reverence of your great power. As we read this psalm, it's easy for us to point fingers at others and say, yeah, they're, they're against you. They're terrible people. And that may be true, but God, we also have to look at ourselves. We're not perfect. We're sinners. We need your love. We need your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Jesus stood on the truth. Through Jesus, we have a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. And so we pray for those who seemingly have walked away from God, who have turned their back on the truth of the Bible. We're no better than them. But we have you. And we pray that you would turn their heart, that they would accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and live in the joy of your kingdom. And Father, we also do remember those who gave their life serving this nation. They fought against raging nations. Be with their families. Make today a special time. Be with those men and women who serve today. Hold them close. Father, we pray that they would belong to you. We thank you and we love you. We pray the words commonly known is the Lord's Prayer, praying together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you will stand while the band comes up, we'll sing our closing song.